Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. President Biden, in one of his first acts in office, has committed to renewing the New START Treaty, the treaty that imposes the last remaining limits on the nuclear weapons arsenals of the U.S. and Russia. The treaty was just days away from expiring after the Trump administration refused to renew it and stalled negotiations. While saying that it will renew New START, the Biden administration also promised that it would conduct an intelligence assessment of various allegations against Russia, including the recent solar winds hack, and potentially impose new costs on Russia in response. The president has long been clear that the New START treaty is in the national security interests of the United States. Uh, and this extension makes even more sense when the relationship with Russia is adversarial as it is at this time. Even as we work with Russia to advance U.S. interests, so too we work to hold Russia to account for its reckless and adversarial actions. And to this end, the president is also issuing, issuing a tasking to the intelligence community for its full assessment of the solar winds, cyber breach, Russian interference in the 2020 election, its use of chemical weapons against opposition leader Alexei Navalny, and the alleged bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. Well, joining me is Bill Arkin, a veteran reporter who covers national security for Newsweek. Bill Arkin, welcome to Pushback. Thanks for having me on, Aaron. You have covered nuclear weapons for a long time. You even uh, broke a very key story about Trump policy on nuclear weapons uh, during his administration. Now that Biden is in and he's renewed uh, New START, which was just days away from expiring, what is your response? Well... We certainly need to have strategic arms control. And I applaud the fact that President Biden has stated that his intention is to renew the START agreement until a new treaty can be negotiated. But it's going to take two to tango. And the state of US-Russian relations is so bad right now. And so many things have changed in the strategic picture between the United States and Russia, that I'm not so confident that we are going to get a five-year renewal. I would imagine that there might be some uh, extension of the uh, treaty to at least ensure that it doesn't expire while the U.S. and Russia begin negotiations. But the truth of the matter is uh, that there have been vast improvements in the Russian nuclear arsenal in the last five to eight years. And there have been also developments on the U.S. side of the deployment of a new mini nuke on Trident submarines and uh, now a $100 billion uh, modernization that uh, will ultimately produce a new bomber, a new land-based missile, and a new submarine with new missiles, an entire revamping of the U.S. nuclear arsenal, uh, that I don't see how you can just have a numbers game without addressing the question any longer of the qualitative angles, or the qualitative uh, pieces of our strategic stability. So we We've now managed to reduce the number of nuclear weapons on the US and Russian side from tens of thousands to thousands. And that was the product of uh, arms control as well as the obsolescence of 
the first, second, and third generations of nuclear weapons. But something has happened in the interim. Conventional weapons have become more and more precise, and thereby they have become more and more intrinsic as a kind of part of the nuclear arsenal. Cyber weapons have become part of the offensive capability of both sides. After many decades of trying, ballistic missile defenses are finally beginning to bear fruit and are possible stoppers of a nuclear attack, which means that they also can undermine strategic stability. And then finally, there is a new generation of nuclear weapons, particularly hypersonic missiles and other very fast moving weapons uh, that might overwhelm the defenses of the other side, or more importantly, in the case of a crisis, not provide the other side with a sufficient amount of time to deliberate properly as to whether or not they want to retaliate. And that deliberation, that half an hour, if you will, that we currently have with the missiles that are deployed is sort of key to maintaining strategic stability, which is to say that neither side can believe that they can undertake a, a first strike against the other, that neither side can believe that they could attack the other without guaranteed retaliation. And uh, that's been the fabric of, of deterrence, if you will, of the, of the unhappy peace that we live with uh, for the last 50 years. And that is beginning to be eroded. And we have not really seriously looked at the arms control implications of the development of new technologies, even those uh, that are not nuclear directly, but support and augment the nuclear arsenals. And I'm afraid that we're not just going to be able to have a numerical ceiling on nuclear weapons without folding in greater considerations of what each of these new capabilities, conventional, cyber, space, hypersonics, uh, electronic warfare, uh, what impact they have on strategic stability. So uh, on the one hand, I think that uh, uh, obviously we need to renew our nuclear dialogue with Russia, but it's also coming at a time when Russia is drifting more and more uh, in the right-wing direction, more and more as an authoritarian country, more and more away from Europe and away from the West. This is not the Russia of the post-Cold War period. And uh, so the task of actually negotiating uh, either a renewal or uh, a new treaty is, is going to be made that much more difficult. Beyond New Start, then, what would be some of the key areas that you would want to see addressed to reduce the threat that you're talking about? Well, again, to me, the core of arms control is not numerical limits on nuclear weapons. Uh, that's just not the relevant part anymore. The core of arms control has to be what do you need to do to retain and maintain strategic stability, which means that neither side feels threatened by the other. And that's gonna require a much more nimble and much more holistic approach to understanding all of the elements that influence that that the command structure is sound and survivable, that, that space is not the new arena 
for warfare, that there are some constraints or at least rules of the road on what one can do with its cyber weapons, uh, that new weapons that might undermine uh, strategic stability, such as hypersonics, those are very fast missiles, are constrained. Uh, and that's just to mention a few. And so to me, uh, we need a more holistic view of what are the threats to strategic stability, and then we need a package that acknowledges that it's no longer just about how many nuclear weapons there are. You talked about Russia becoming more authoritarian and that being a potential hindrance. Um, I see more of a concern in terms of dangers with the dangers of U.S. policy in terms of uh, the involvement in Ukraine on Russia's borders, the massive war games on Russia's borders, the continued U.S. occupation of Syria, the attempt to overthrow Russia's ally in Venezuela. These to me are all major policies that drive tensions with Russia in a dangerous way because it is the other nuclear power. Could that also be an area that if those issues were addressed, if the U.S. rolled back some of its hegemonic or aggressive policies, if that could lead to a better climate for uh, nuclear talks? Wow, you said the word hegemonic. Um, uh, is it know, wrong? Is it, is it wrong to you? Is, is, that, is that the wrong term? I think that Russia is uh, struggling to be a hegemonic power themselves. And certainly the Russians and the Chinese are using every opportunity they can to uh, have greater influence in places like Africa in particular, uh, even military influence in places like that. And to say that the United States occupies Syria when in fact Russia has more troops in Syria than we do is ridiculous. Yeah, but who was but, invited there? But who, who was invited but, there? <laughs> I mean, look, not uh, to get sidetracked. Syria, okay. Trust me, we have barely any troops there. The point more is that the war in the Middle East, the standoff in Eastern Europe, uh, the battle over the hearts and minds of the right wing in, in Europe, uh, those are irritants of U.S.-Russian relations that are not going to go away, even from changes of American policy, because the bottom line is that right now, uh, Russia maintains power, and I think Putin in particular uh, becomes more powerful when it is shown that Russia can fuck with the United States and that the primary objective in 2016 in interfering in the elections and then the last four years of experience of the Russians interfering in American democracy as much as they can uh, was to uh, show the weaknesses of American democracy, to, to win an ideological battle that we might not be fighting, but they are. And so overall, uh, to me, uh, the Russian domestic uh, situation and Putin's domestic uh, uh, policies and, and his positioning of himself as King Putin at, Putin uh, are really uh, the main impediments, because if I'm the Russians right now and Joe Biden comes to the 
negotiating table in Geneva and says, let's renew the new start agreement. I've read in the newspapers in the last few days, oh, well, maybe we should only do this for a year because that'll give us greater leverage against the Russians for all the bad things they're doing around the world. And I'm thinking just exactly the opposite, which is that if I'm the Russians, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say no because uh, that gives them the power uh, to be able to uh, once again show failed American leadership and policy, and the United States can't do it by itself. So this is not an easy task, and it's not necessarily one in which it's clear that the Russians want to play. That well, they, they have actually get Bill, more from not playing than playing. As I understand it, they offered under Trump and I don't believe that offer has expired unconditionally a five-year renewal of New Start. So why would they back off of that now? Because of Ukraine, because of Syria, because of their desire to have more influence in Africa and the Middle East, because they see the, the, the decline of American democracy, because they see the split in America. Yes, it's in their interests to have arms control. That's in their interests. But if their broader strategic objectives are not facilitated through that New START treaty, they may look at the Biden administration and say, uh, we have other interests. We have other bigger interests. I'm not saying that they're not going to agree to an arms control treaty. I'm just saying that we also at the same time, and you said it in your introduction uh, about you know, the intelligence assessment of what the situation is. Uh, it is going to be shown to President Biden that the Russians have moved very aggressively in the last four years in building up their arsenal and modernizing their forces and in positioning themselves to uh, be able to assert themselves more aggressively. And uh, those things might militate against even the Biden administration wanting to just maintain the status quo. I can see some brilliant A student within the Biden administration saying, you know, maybe we should try to get more than start the new start, or maybe we should add this provision or that provision. And then right away, you've renegotiated and you've opened up the negotiations in such a way that they could drag on for years. So do I see a short-term renewal of the New START Treaty? Yes. Do I see a reluctance on both sides to not push the nuclear button here and the nuclear button here would be to have no treaty? Yes. But do I think that it's far more complicated than it's been in the past and also that the Russians might have their own strategic objectives which contradict nuclear arms control? Yes, I do. And so I'm not particularly optimistic. Well, I this is where I think, from what I've heard you say there, I have a fundamental I have a fundamental disagreement with how you portray Russia's strategic objectives, which admittedly I'm not an expert on. But when I look at all the examples you laid out, I see Russia acting as a countervailing force to U.S. hegemony, starting on its own borders in Ukraine, where it was the U.S. that helped back a coup that then set off a proxy war in the Donbass with heavy U.S. involvement. In Syria, you say that the U.S. is not occupying to the extent Russia is, but there's a big difference. Russia was invited by Syria to help it defeat 
a dirty war that the U.S. was heavily involved in far before Russia got involved by spending billions of dollars to so-called rebels. Uh, and now the U.S. is occupying uh, Syria's breadbasket, the Northeast, which has a lot of oil and where a lot of wheat is produced. And that is helping keeping Syria poor. And the key thing is they're not invited. Syria didn't invite them, whereas they invited Russia. And with 2016, I guess, Bill, I mean, look, you've been so critical of the national security state. I guess where we differ there is just as you were skeptical, I think 100% in a way that was vindicated about collusion, I also don't accept on faith the allegations of the sweeping Putin interference campaign to mess with U.S. democracy and expose it. There, you know, The evidence that I've seen so far is thin, and we could get into a whole debate about that, which I didn't bring you on to do, and I don't expect to have it with you. But I guess, I guess my point here is I question your presumptions about Russia's strategic objectives. And I'm wondering if you're open to the fact that what if, if the U.S. is the hegemonic power here, is the aggressor, and if that could be rolled back, could that lead to a better path for nuclear weapons and reduce the bellicosity on both sides? Well, there you go again, as Ronald Reagan once said, hegemony. <laughs> so um, the United States is an empire. Yes. And the reason why I'm, I, I laugh and, and, and reject the word hegemony is it's a Russian term. It's what the Russians say. And, you know, we are an empire and we are the most powerful and we are the biggest and we are all over the place and we are fighting endless wars in the Middle East. And we are now bombing in 10 countries in the Middle East and Africa and even in Asia. So the truth of the matter is that our first task has to be to end perpetual war. That absolutely has to be our first task. But the nuclear situation has always existed sort of on its own plane. And, uh, and one of the features of nuclear arms control and the nuclear relationship between the two countries was that even in the darkest days of US-Soviet relations, and the darkest days of US-Russian relations, there was a recognition on both sides that nuclear arms control was in both sides' interests. And I certainly hope that that prevails in this new environment. But the truth of the matter is, and there are people who have written about this, and I commend you to pay attention to what they've written. Uh, Kathleen Hall Jameson, in particular, has written a brilliant book about the 2016 elections that more importantly shows that there was influence by virtue of what people perceived to be the Russian interference than necessarily what the actual Russian interference was. And second, I'm not necessarily willing to say that the destruction and the weakening of our democracy over the last four years is solely Donald Trump's doing. Uh, I think that there have been mischief makers, even if you just want to call them that, that have reveled in that and have contributed. So I, I'm not going to excuse Russia. I'm not going to, um, uh, and, and I'm not going to vilify them. I, I'm just going to say that factually, uh, U.S.-Russian relations have probably been, uh, never been uh, more 
tenuous and uh, and and certainly from the days of the end of the Cold War and then again in the renewal just after 9-11 when the U.S. and Russia were cooperating over everything, they now are the main adversary and even the national security strategy of the United States signed in 2018 and, and, and undoubtedly codified and continued by President Biden identifies Russia as the main adversary and the main enemy. And I don't see that changing. So whether I believe it or I don't believe it, the truth of the matter is that US-Russian relations are as bad as they've been since the Cold War. And that's going to influence our negotiations with them. Absolutely. Especially if Russia perceives that militarily and in terms of nuclear weapons, that they are reaching some kind of true parity with the United States. I guess my point, though, here is that while I don't want to excuse Russia for anything either, I also don't want to falsely accuse them of things that they're not necessarily guilty of, or at least of things that there's not evidence for yet. And I see a series of allegations made about Russia for the last four years, especially, that they're controlling our democracy. They installed Trump. They're expanding their empire around the world, and we need to stop them. I see a lot of claims that lack evidence or are contradicted well, by the evidence. Well, I, I, I don't the, disagree the, with you, the Aaron, case but of can the bounties... you at least let's agree on a word. Let's agree on one word, okay? okay? Meddling. Have they meddled? Well, again, it depends what you, how you define meddling. Did they post some dumb social media posts on, fa on Facebook and Instagram that nobody saw and that weren't even about the election? Yeah, they did. So if that's meddling, absolutely. By a private troll farm. It's not did just they, that. Did, it's, did they steal it's Russian media that is very much oriented towards the United States, whether it be RT or Sputnik or other media sources that people in the United States seek and think is impartial. Um, it's not just that. But meddling, you know, I think we can agree on meddling. They've tried. Whether they've succeeded or not, we can debate for a long time, but they've tried. Well, I think that's an important just point. As you would say, We've meddled in Russian affairs. Absolutely. To a, a far greater extent than Russia. Whether has it's true or it isn't true, we now have meddling parody. <laughs> well, <And> so that <laughs> has created this state of US Russian relations, which ultimately will have an influence on all of these negotiations that the Biden administration is committed to, including climate change, by the way, including the new treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons. Yes. All of these things now will have to be uh, examined and understood in the context of what is the US-Russian relationship? What is the US-Chinese relationship? Because those are now um, not necessarily our partners and what our international objectives are, uh, those are our impediments. And so whether you think that they're right or wrong, whether you want to blame the United States or not, you asked me a question, which was what's going to happen with the new START treaty? And my yes. answer was, given the state of US-Russian relations, given the situation inside Russia, given the developments of the nuclear arsenals and the ancillary elements of those arsenals that now changes the calculus of strategic stability and deterrence. Uh, it's not going to be altogether clear 
that this is just a matter of a quick trip to Geneva and the signing of a document, I think it's going to be a lot more complicated. Okay. So, and we're going to disagree on whether or not there is meddling parity between the U.S. and Russia, but let's end by uh, talking about something you mentioned, which is very important. As we are speaking, a uh, global ban on nuclear weapons has just gone into effect. It was ratified by more than 50 countries at the at the United Nations a few years ago, and it's just taken to it's just taken effect now. What is the significance of that? None. Nothing. <laughs> well, let's be clear. It's a it's a global treaty which prohibits many things, and one of those things is a storage and stockpiling of nuclear weapons, and that's why countries like the Netherlands have declined to ratify. So you have a treaty that goes into force on January 22nd, I believe. And that treaty, which has been signed by all of the non-nuclear countries of the world, has not been signed by any of the nuclear countries of the world. And that's not just the nuclear powers, but that's also the six European nations, which are strong colluders in the nuclear arsenal, Turkey, the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Italy, uh, which uh, host and store US nuclear weapons on their soil. So it's unless, until we can resolve the deployment of nuclear weapons in Europe, until we can um, have meaningful uh, uh, numerical reductions. And until we can fold the other nuclear powers, both the acknowledged and unacknowledged nuclear powers, including Israel, into some kind of an arms control regime, the idea that there's going to be an actual impact of the treaty that bans nuclear weapons is naive. Does it help to create the fabric of international law uh, which in my mind has existed for decades, that makes the use of nuclear weapons illegal? Yes. Uh, does it help to strengthen the international institutions which agitate for arms control and agitate for uh, greater strategic stability? Absolutely. But until China and the UK and France as well as the United States and Russia are fully engaged in an arms control process. And until the other nuclear powers, India, Pakistan, and Israel, uh, are acknowledged and um, brought to the negotiating table, and until the North Korean situation is resolved, I, I don't see a, a treaty uh, being of much impact. Um, I see just a lot more fighting ahead. Bill Arkin, award-winning national security reporter for Newsweek. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Aaron.